0: G.K. Chesterton once said, A man's soul is as full of voices as a forest. Fancies, follies, memories, madness, mysterious fears, and more mysterious hopes. All settlement and sane government of life consists in coming to the conclusion that some of those voices have authority and others do not. And he wrote that in the Illustrated London News on July 2, 1910, under the title, The Language of Eternity. So, like a man's mind described by Chesterton, the collection of Christians across the world is also full of many, varying voices, many of which contradict one another, just like we talked about in the last episode in Soul Scriptura. For this very reason, the faithful and sincere Christian ought to discern with all seriousness and vigor which voices do indeed have God-given authority, and which in fact do not. One should ask and wonder who truly does have the authority, as prescribed by scripture, to interpret and lead the body of Christ, the Church, into understanding so that we can be one as Scripture asks of us. A Christian should pursue and seek out who is to keep us from being swayed to and fro with every wind of doctrine, and one should wonder if the Christian life truly is to be an island where each individual believer is to figure and define every detail for themselves without having to adhere to any authoritative guidance. As we have established in the series up to this point, they can only be, and must be, only one true way to interpret scripture, and we have established that those under Sola Scriptura cannot fulfill these needs of the faithful. So what is left is a look to the opposing claim, and that is that it's not scripture alone which has the authority, but that Christ gave us a magisterium, an interpretive body within the Catholic Church. My name is Austin Wright, welcome to the Pond Rock Podcast. Our series on Solicryptura has been culminating to this very point, having trust in the legitimacy of the authority of Rome. I established in my episode on St. Peter, which I'll put a link in the description below, I made a case in that episode of how Christ set St. Peter's aside with a specific office which bestowed on him the function of being the rock, steward, server, and shepherd of the church. Now, this office is what we refer to as the Papacy. Before coming to understand the type of authority held by the papacy and an argument in favor of it can be made, we must first understand what this office's authority is not. To those who aren't Catholic and perhaps even know as Catholics, the term infallible may seem to be in line with anything from being all-knowing to even being sinless and free from criticism I know there's even misunderstandings, misconceptions among some Protestants that Catholics think that the Pope is immaculately conceived. I, I have heard and seen that, that ridiculous claim before. Um, but all these misconceptions can be due to a lot of misunderstandings by Catholics themselves who go on to share these misconceptions unknowingly, which is why we, we desperately need um, reform when it comes to catechesis, because there are a lot of misinformed or underinformed Catholics. And St. Peter says we need to be at the ready to to defend our faith, and sadly, a lot of Catholics aren't. But, anyways, back to infallibility. So rather than infallibility being a divine impudence that makes the Pope perfect, sinless, and thus free from personal error, uh, St. Peter's clear evidence that popes are not expected by the church to be to be perfect. Infallibility is something that the Holy Spirit prevents the church as a whole from doing. In particular, forming formally binding Christians to hold to and live by a doctrinal heresy. It's a protection of and an assurance to the faithful, insofar that they know, as long as they are in strict union with Rome, that they will not be led to believe a damnable and erroneous teaching rather than it being an ability of the Pope to make any rules he'd like. So, to get a good definition of it, let's go back to the 19th century Church Council of Vatican I, where it defined it as such. Therefore, faithfully adhering to to the tradition received from the beginning of the Christian faith, to the glory of God our Savior, for the exaltation of the Catholic religion, for the salvation of the Christian people, with the approval of the Sacred Council, we teach and define as a divinely revealed dogma that... When the Roman pontiff speaks ex cathedra, that is, when in the exercise of his office as shepherd and teacher of all Christians, in virtue of his supreme apostolic authority, he defines a doctrine concerning faith or morals to be held by the whole church. He possesses, by the divine assistance promised to him in Blessed Peter, that infallibility which the divine Redeemer willed his church to enjoy in defining doctrine concerning faith or morals, Therefore, such definitions of the Roman Pontiff are of themselves, and not, by the consent of the Church, irreformable. So, it is not that the Church knows all things, but that by the will of God, His Church will always be preserved from heresy and error, since its doctrinal binding declarations will already have been in unison with Heaven prior to formal annunciation, as we see in Matthew 16, 19, which enables Christ's Bride to carry on the Apostles' teachings purely. Christ promised to protect his bride from the gates of hell. So are we not to believe him? So rather than asking where is infallibility in the Bible, we should be wondering where scriptures sk- get where scripture gives us the impression that Christ's established church could possibly teach error. For whoever hears the church hears Christ, like in Luke 10, verse 16. And Christ cannot teach error. And if he has been given all authority in heaven and on earth, as he states in Matthew 28, 18, and then he bestows this authority like he does in Matthew 16, Matthew 18, Matthew 28, Luke 9, John 21, why would divine protection not come with this bestowment of authority? Are there passages within scripture which would lead us to believe that Christ would not be with his church and that he would leave it unguided? We should all be able to agree as Christians that the writers of the gospel accounts and the epistles within the canon of scripture were guided and guarded by the Holy Spirit, which made their written words inerrant. Basically, these personally fallible men were thus protected by the Holy Spirit for the sake of scripture, which was for the sake of the faithful. So in a sense, all Christians believe in infallibility. Therefore, we know this sort of protection exists as a part of the guidance of the Holy Spirit, which walks along with the church to guide into all truth, as we see in John 16, verse 13. And that's exactly what infallibility is. The Holy Spirit guiding the church down the path of truth, which is what we hear and receive from Christ himself. Christ himself tells us this. The Holy Spirit won't allow for the strides of doctrine to fall outside the straight and narrow path. Because if it does, if doctrine was to become twisted to the point of falling off the straight and narrow, then that means that hell will have prevailed, and Christ already promised against that possibility. That's one thing which I just don't understand, is what do Protestants think it means when Christ said that the gates of hell would not prevail against the church that he built upon Peter? What does that mean? That hell would not prevail. Now, some may argue that infallibility was not defined until 1870 at Vatican I, and so therefore it's not something that was relevant or present within the early church, and that it's just some recent development, some brand new doctrine that the church made up. At first glance, I m- might be able to understand why a person might come to say that, but the fact that a certain teaching isn't defined extraordinarily by the magisterium it does not follow that the, ordi- that the ordinary magisterium the universal traditional teaching of bishops which has been passed on through church history it doesn't mean that they throughout history haven't adhered to this belief it also does not mean that the ratified teaching wasn't true leading up to its definition because with that argument if one were to follow that line of thinking that would mean that christ did not have two natures human, and divine, until it was defined in 325 AD at the Council of Nicaea, and at the same time, it could be said of the Trinity, which is neither mentioned in Scripture explicitly nor defined as the Council of Chalcedon in 451 AD. Definitions by the Church are not an invention of something new, but a deeper clarification of teachings already present in some form or another within Scripture and tradition. For instance... Cyprian, Bishop of Carthage um, in the 3rd century, had this to say about the church. Would heretics dare to come to the very seat of Peter from where apostolic faith is derived and where no errors can come? That sounds an awful lot like the idea of infallibility. And that's in the 3rd century of the church. And even before St. Cyprian, there was St. Irenaeus who said since however it would be very tedious in such a volume as this to reckon up the successions of all the churches we do put to confusion all those who in whatever, matter, whatever manner whether by an evil self-pleasing by vainglory or by blindness and perverse opinion assemble in unauthorized meetings we do this i say by indicating that tradition de- derived from the apostles of the very great, the very ancient, and universally known church founded and organized at Rome by the two most glorious apostles, Peter and Paul. As also, by pointing out, the faith preached to men, which comes down to our time by means of the successions of the bishops, for it is a matter of necessity that every church should agree with this church on account of its preeminent authority." And again, that was St. Irenaeus um, in his work against heresies, which was written in AD 189. That's pretty early on. That's that's very early on. Now, his piece here isn't necessarily saying infallibility per se. However, it, it is saying that it is a matter of necessity to be in union with the Church of Rome because of its authority. And this is his metric that he judges of how to discern the teachings that are present is if it's within union with that church which has preeminent authority, which he claims as being uh, founded by Peter and Paul. So it's still you still don't have an out when it comes to the early church because the early church is at least saying you have to be in union with the Church of Rome, and St. Irenaeus points to Peter. St. Irenaeus also is one of the first ones to give us a list of popes stretching from Peter up until the Pope of his time. He gives us a recorded list of the bishops of Rome, and he says that we have to be in accordance and in union with that church. So you don't have an out. This A a saint from the 2nd century that's really early on is saying that this is the metric to judge teachings on. And if you wish to go even sooner than 189, St. Ignatius, a direct disciple of St. John and Bishop of Antioch, who in fact succeeded after um, St. Peter uh, in a line of succession in that region, while St. Ignatius was on his way to his martyrdom, he wrote seven letters. And in his letter to the Romans, dated between 104 to 110, which is only a decade after Revelation was written by St. John, he addresses the Church of Rome in a manner unlike any other church um, that he writes a letter to. He says, Ignatius, who is also called Theophorus, to the Church which has has obtained mercy through the majesty of the Most High Father, Jesus Christ, his only begotten Son, the Church which is beloved and enlightened by the will of him that wills all things which are according to the love of Jesus Christ our God, which also presides in the country of the region of the Romans, worthy of God, worthy of honor, worthy of the highest happiness, worthy of praise, worthy of obtaining her every desire, worthy of being deemed holy, and which presides over love, walking in the law of Christ, and bearing the Father's name. Which, church, I also salute in the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, to those who are united, both according to the flesh and spirit, to every one of his commandments, who are filled inseparably with the grace of God, and who are purified from every strange taint, I wish an abundance of happiness unblameably in Jesus Christ our God. So we see here, St. Ignatius sets Rome apart from the other churches he writes to while on his way to his death. But his acknowledgement of Rome's role within the universal church doesn't stop with his, with his initial greeting. He carries on to say in chapter 3, You never grudged anyone. You were the instructor of others. And my desire is that those lessons shall hold good, which as teachers you enjoin. And in chapter 9, Remember in your prayers the church in Syria, which now has God for its shepherd, instead of me. Jesus Christ alone will oversee it, and your love will also regard it. And in chapter 10, As to those who have gone before me from Syria to Rome for the glory of God, I believe that you have received instructions to whom make known that I am near, for they are all worthy, both of God and of you, and it is becoming that you should refresh them in all things. These three saints I've mentioned, St. Cyprian of Carthage, St. Irenaeus, and St. Ignatius, though they were separated by great elapses of time, together they believe that the church that was led by Rome was the inerrant unifying doctrinal teacher of all the faithful even though infallibility wasn't absolutely defined until many centuries after their deaths they still had a notion of what the preeminent authority of the church of rome um, had within its role within the church An even more bold claim came comes from saint augustine uh, bishop of hippo uh, who was a profound lover of both tradition and scripture, who in 397 AD had this reflection on the church, despite his evident faithfulness to Holy Scripture throughout all of his writings, he said, I would not believe in the gospels were it not for the authority of the Catholic church. Now, a lot of Calvinists love to try and claim St. Augustine, but that that's a, that's a quote that would get any Protestant scratching their head it's sometimes it's amazing um how some of the reformed apologists like to try to claim Augustine as one of their own, even though he was so overtly Catholic i there were so many verses, sorry, not verses, there are so many quotes by St Augustine on different matters within the the church and its teachings, which are so overtly Catholic um that It's amazing that any any Protestant thinker or apologist would try to claim him. And I'll definitely go into more of St. Augustine at another time because he has such amazing things to say on certain aspects of Catholic teaching. But anyways, so we know that Scripture speaks of the church as being the pillar and bulwark of the truth, as in 1 Timothy 3, 3.15. That term, bulwark is a word we don't commonly come into contact with. The Greek term for it that St. Paul used was hedrioma, which means a foundation. This term's definition sparks a reminder to Matthew 16, where Peter was named the rock upon which Christ's church was to be built. The foundation, if you will. Kittel's Theological Dictionary of the New Testament, which is a collection of in-depth Protestant articles on theological terms, explains in its piece on the term Paul uses in this manner. A church is established which protects and defends the truth against the confusion of myths. It gives the faith in thinking of individuals a sure ground and confession of the faith. No longer God alone, but also the church of God, now guarantees the permanence of the, of the aletheia, the truth. The steadfastness of faith has now become loyalty to the church, and the Confession, and that's from volume 2, page 364. And this is a Protestant work. Again, this is a Protestant definition. And this comes across as being quite a Catholic-sounding explanation of that term, which gives even more credence to the Catholic understanding of the role of the Church, that even if if a Protestant scholarly work can come to the conclusion on like on that interpretation of that word, and will even admit to its definition that's that's what it means, it it just gives even more credence to the Catholic um, claims. And this foundational structure of of the Roman Catholic Church, of it having an authoritative teaching office comprised of bishops, who are the successor of the apostles, follows the likeness of the hierarchical structure of ancient Israel. This bulwark foundational kind of structure It goes all the way back. And we see that Jesus establishes his church in this fashion, using traditional Jewish language in the process, such as binding and loosing and referring to the keys of the kingdom. In the Gospel of Matthew, for instance, Christ uses a term in reference to the scribes and Pharisees, which is not found within the Old Testament, but only within oral tradition. And I'll read the verse to you. The scribes and Pharisees sit on Moses' seat, so practice and observe what they tell you, but not what they do, for they preach, but do not practice. Even though our Lord strongly accuses the scribes and Pharisees of hypocrisy for not adhering to their own, for their, to their own teachings, and even coming up with, with some of their own twistings of teachings, he still insists that they hold a position of legitimate authority which he describes as them sitting on Moses' seat. In his book, The New Century Bible Commentary on the Gospel of Matthew, David Hill covers this passage and says that Moses' seat was simply not a metaphor, that there was an actual stone seat in front of the synagogue where the authoritative teacher sat. And you can find that on page 310 of his book. One's own search for any reference to this aforementioned seat of Moses and the Old Old Testament would be in vain. It's just not there. It's a tradition that's not present within Scripture, which, again, should make some Protestants scratch their heads that Christ is referencing a tradition that isn't mentioned explicitly in Scripture. It was, however, a common understanding in ancient Israel that there was indeed an authoritative uh, office charged with interpretation and with, quote unquote, binding and loosening, which was passed on by Moses to successors. So, the first verse of the Mishnah tractate, which is a written collection of Jewish oral traditions, indicates the Jews understood God's revelation as received by Moses as having been passed down from Moses in an uninterrupted succession by the laying on of hands, uh, which bestowed his authority, starting with Joshua and then onto those after him. And we see that in Deuteronomy 34 and Numbers 27. And we see this authority being passed on, you know, all along onto the elders and the prophets and the great Sanhedrin. The scribes and Pharisees participated in this authoritative line. And because of this position that they held, their teaching deserved to be respected. Jesus draws from old tradition to uphold the legitimacy of this teaching office in Israel despite their personal errors and hypocrisies. The Catholic Church, in upholding the legitimacy of both tradition and scripture, follows this example set by Jesus himself. So, this verse in St. Matthew's Gospel about Moses' chair alludes to why we say that the successor of St. Peter, when he gives an authoritative and binding teaching for the whole church, is described as teaching ex cathedra, meaning from the chair. As we saw in the Vatican I declaration. This term, Cathedra, is where we also derive the word cathedral, indicating where the bishop of the diocese presides. A chair, in liturgical context, indicates where one can look to for authority. Where there is a chair, there is authority. But ultimately, is the chair in Rome that we look to? It is how we can know if our interpretations and understandings of Scripture are bound in and united to heaven, since any declaration by the church is already a preordained truth meant to be declared to the faithful. In short, what is bound on earth was already bound and was true in heaven prior. The binding on earth shows the connection between church and God. The church has led to come to realizations of doctrine over time through guidance of the Spirit. And this here is the notable and fundamental difference between the magisterium of the Old Covenant and our teachers under the New Covenant. The successors of the apostles and especially Peter's successors have the Holy Spirit to actively guide them into all truth, as we've stated many times before. Now, there are also those outside of the church who try to claim that the church fathers and historians fail to mention Peter or the papal lineage after him. And they will then use this as their ground from which to claim that the papacy was non-existent in the early church and was therefore an invention of the Roman Empire, such church union, more or less. Um, and, and they'll state, like, you know, whenever, Christianity became legal in the fourth century. You know that's whenever this monarchical papacy came about and, and such. Although you will hear varying claims as from Protestants who are against the papacy, they'll come up with different timelines of when the papacy uh, comes about. But one thing they all agree on is they'll say that the papacy was not present um, within the very earliest stages of the church, as in from Peter onwards. Um, but this is far from true. We have accounts from varying areas within the early Christian centuries of the church. For instance, amidst his response to the Donatists, whose beliefs led them into a schism, St. Optatus, which was the bishop of Miletus, said, You cannot deny that you are aware that in the city of Rome, the Episcopal chair was given first to Peter, the chair in which Peter sat, the same who was head, That is why he is also called Kephas, rock, of all the apostles, the one chair in which unity is maintained by all. And that was in 367. There also is not a lack of evidence and record of the lineage after Pope Peter, as someone loved to claim. The church, as mentioned previously, carries on their offices as Israel did. And I will go into this more in depth in the next episode, but... To prove one's rightful position among the leadership of the early church, you had to show and trace your unbroken lineage leading back to the apostles. It was crucial in the continuance of, of, uh, of the church. As Tertullian um, in the year 200 says, this is the way in which the apostolic churches transmit their lists, like the church of the Smyrnians, um, S- 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 which records that Polycarp was placed there by John, like the church of the Romans where Clement was ordained by Peter. We also have Eusebius, an Eastern bishop, who was far removed by Rome by distance. He, wrote, he also wrote on the, papal, uh, on the early papal lineage, and he says, Paul testifies that Crescens was sent to Gaul, but Linus, whom he mentions in the second epistle to Timothy as his companion at Rome, was Peter's successor in the episcopate of the church there and has already been shown, as has already been shown. Clement also, who was appointed third bishop of the church at Rome, was, as Paul testifies, his co-laborer and fellow soldier. And he wrote that in his work, Church History, in the year 312. So here Eusebius mentions at least two of Peter's first known successors. But an even more impressive testimony comes, from, comes again from St. Irenaeus, who, in the 2nd century, as I said before, offered an account of the lineage of the bishopric of Rome. And I'll put I'll put a link to that in the description. Uh, I believe that's on New Advent, uh, the website New Advent, which is a, a great website for looking into the early church. But again, I'll, I'll put a link to to that in the description. But he he, he gives us a list leading from Saint Peter up into the Pope of his own day. Um, in his particular passage where he gives us this list, Saint Irenus also mentions Pope Clement. Uh, he says the blessed apostles, then having founded and built up the church committed into the hands of Linus, the office of the Episcopate of this Linus, Linus Paul makes mention the apostles of Timothy to him succeeded. Anacletus after him in the third place, from the apostles Clement was allotted the bishopric, this man, as he had, as he had seen the blessed apostles and had been conversant with them might be said to have the preaching of the apostles still echoing in his ears. And their traditions before his eyes. Nor was he alone in this, for there were many still remaining who had received instructions from the apostles. In the time of this Clement, no small dissension having occurred among the brethren at Corinth, the Church of Rome dispatched the most powerful letter to the Corinthians, exhorting them to peace, renewing their faith, and declaring the tradition which had lately received, which it had lately received from the apostles. Saint Irenaeus, in the year 189, is mentioning a letter from pope clement um which he wrote to the corinthians and the dating of this letter um it's kind of up for debate but it's it's dated anywhere between the year 70 and the year 96 and it's a fantastic piece of evidence in support of the catholic claims and it's so so early on this is first century um Another good reason as to why it gives um, strong support for the Catholic claim is during the time that this letter was written, whether you take the earlier stance or the later stance, either way, St. John the Apostle was still alive when Pope Clement wrote to the Church at Corinth. But the Corinthians don't reach out to St. John when they encounter an issue within their church. St. John was even closer in proximity, which means a letter would have gotten to him sooner and he was one of the pillars of the church, as we as we know from Scripture. Um, but the Corinthians choose to reach out to Rome instead, and Saint Clement responds: The apostles have preached the gospel to us from the Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ has done so from God. Christ, therefore, was sent forth by God, and the apostles by Christ. Both these appointments then were made in an orderly way, according to the will of God. Having therefore received the orders and being fully assured by the resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ and, est- and established in the word of God with full assurance of the Holy Ghost, they went forth proclaiming that the kingdom of God was at hand. And thus, preaching through countries and cities, they appointed the first fruits of their labors, having first proved them by the Spirit to be bishops and deacons of those who should afterwards believe. Our apostles also knew through our Lord Jesus Christ that there would be strife on account of the office of the episcopate. For this reason, therefore, inasmuch as they had obtained a perfect foreknowledge of this, they appointed those ministers already mentioned, and afterwards gave instructions that when these should fall asleep, other approved men should succeed in their ministry. Let us therefore flee from the warning threats pronounced by wisdom on the disobedient and yield submission to his all-holy and glorious name, that we may stay our trust upon the most hallowed name of his majesty. Receive our counsel, and you shall be without repentance. If, however, any shall disobey the words spoken by him through us, let them know that they will involve themselves in transgression and serious danger, but we shall be innocent of this sin. Right is it, therefore, to approach examples so good and so many, And submit the neck and fulfill the part of obedience, in order that, undisturbed by vain sedition, we may attain unto the goal set before us in truth, wholly free from blame. Joy and gladness will will you afford us, if you become obedient to the words written by us and through the Holy Spirit, root out the lawless wrath of your jealousy, according to the intercession which we have made for peace and unity in this letter." And that was from the first letter of St. Pope, Pope Clement to the Corinthians, written between 70 and 96 AD. Now, that was definitely a mouthful. It was very long, but I just thought it was, it was necessary. It's, it's so good. I encourage anyone to go read the letter from Pope Clement to the Corinthians. Um, but Pope Clement would have known Peter and Paul and would have received direct teaching and instruction from the apostles themselves. And again... The Corinthians reached out to Rome itself, and that's why he had pre- they, they perceived the Church of Rome to have precedence over the other churches. And this letter was considered so important, the letter as a whole was considered so important that it was read alongside Scripture during Mass in the early church. It also had widespread support for it being included in the canon of Scripture, come time that the church discussed the formation of the canon all of this indeed is very strong evidence that the early church adhered to the same catholic views as today even though they were in seed form the teachings themselves are unchanging in nature they've only changed in depth of definition over the centuries but in reflection what we should see again is that scripture itself does not give itself authority nor declared to have been bestowed authority in the early church doesn't look to scripture as being the ultimate authority. As we've kind of gone through, they all looked to the church of Rome. And another side note, scripture also does not give account of itself of what the actual canon of scripture is. Because again, it was the church which formed and ratified the canon and declared which books were inspired and which were not. Sola Scriptura, just keeps on ending up being self-defeating. It is not. It is not protected by tradition or the, or anyone within the early church. It is not a teaching recognized by any of the martyrs who died in the early church. They did not die with the notion of sola scriptura. What scripture does tell us is that the church is the pillar and the bulwark of truth in First Timothy. That the gates of hell will not prevail against the church in Matthew 16. That the Holy Spirit will guide the church into all truth in John 16. That we are not to have dissension or disunity amongst ourselves as in 1 Corinthians 1 and Romans 16. And that Christ wishes for us to be one as he prays for in John 17. That we are not to be tossed to and fro with every wind of doctrine as in Ephesians 4. That the apostles were bestowed authority and that Peter had chief authority, as we see in Matthew 16, and how we see the apostles also joined in this authority in Matthew 18, 28, Luke uh, 9, and John 21, and that this authority is present within succession, as we see within the book's facts. If this is what Scripture tells us, and if Scripture is what you view as the ultimate court of appeals, then then shouldn't you submit to what Scripture declares? Only after achieving true unity, can Christians then be of one functioning mind in doctrine. And Protestantism cannot give us that. You can see by the dissension amongst all the churches within Protestantism that there's not one functioning mind. They all differ so drastically on, and they even differ on what they would declare would be the fundamentals. And Protestantism is built upon Sola Scriptura whether the current believers will adhere to it or not, in some way they their churches are built upon the notion of Sola Scriptura, and it, it itself is self-defeating. And like I just mentioned in the first part of the series in, in A Faulty Foundation, that when the foundation begins to crack, it really starts to show what is true and what isn't. And the fact that Protestantism was built upon this notion, this faulty notion Everything from there leads into all these faults and these heretical teachings. These things which no, no one in the early church would have adhered to, even as much as they want, again, try to claim St. Augustine, they can't. He's overtly Catholic. But again, it is only after achieving true unity that Christians can then be of one functioning mind in doctrine and of one loving heart in worship and have in their hands every means by which to be become holy as scripture requests of us and thus finally be the fully functional body of christ here on earth rather than being separated severed limbs all trying to reach heaven and this is all possible within the church established by christ on a rock the catholic church But I'm not done with Sola Scriptura. I will have maybe one or two more episodes on this, just to try to put the nail in the coffin on this doctrine which has led so many Christians astray, which is keeping us from being unified. And that is the thing we should all be aspiring towards, is unity, Christian unity, because we are supposed to be one within the body, and we are not. And we need to take this doctrine of Sola Scriptura out to the back 40 and we need to put it down because that is what is keeping us from being one and i will go more into that and i will put more nails into this coffin but for now so thank you for listening and i will see you in our next episode if you like this episode or the podcast in general Please share it on social media and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. If you'd like to support Upon the Rock, please consider donating to us on Patreon. Also, don't forget to go to upontherockblog.com to keep up all of the content we have to offer with much more on the way. Upon the Rock, would like to thank all of our supporters. We would ask you to continue to please pray for us. Thank you.